Valerie earned her MA and PhD in art history at Columbia University. She started her museum career with position at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and Museum of Modern Art in New York before joining the Hijon staff in 1978. As senior curator of modern art, Valerie is responsible for modern art in all areas. Her research and publications address a wide range of European and American sculptures from 1880s to 1960s. She is widely recognized for her expertise on the connections between materials, making, and meaning. Valerie's major exhibitions and accompanying catalogs for the Hijon include Utopian Vision in Modern Art, Alberto Giacometti, Four Latin American Pioneers of Modernism, The Human Figure Interpreted, and Issa Munaguchi, Master Sculptor, which was shown here at the Hijon in 2005. With her expertise in modern sculpture, Valerie was a natural choice to serve as organizing curator of the Hirschhorn's presentation of Louis Bourgeois exhibition. Valerie's installation of the exhibition is outstanding because of her clear sense of space and her deep understanding of Bourgeois' work. Please join me in giving warm welcome to Valerie Fletcher. Good evening, and thank you all for coming indoors on such a glorious evening outdoors after all the rain we've had. Um, let me preface this by saying that when um, I was assigned to uh, coordinate and to some degree co-curate the Louise Bourgeois show here, um, I didn't really know that much about her work other than in the general context of certain types of art that she created. Um, when I came to work more intensively on the show, I realized that I was experiencing from time to time a disconnect. The disconnect was between what I was perceiving in some of the works of art and what the artist said she intended in these works of art. So my lecture tonight is uh, addressing some fundamental and some specific instances of how biography or the artist's autobiography can illuminate and sometimes interfere with the range and depth of our perceptions and insights into an artist's work. Um, two Picasso paintings to start off with the general. Um, there have been so many reams of paper used to publish information about and assessments of Picasso's relationships with women, uh, yet I point out something rather obvious, which is the painting on the left, which is uh, a painting from the uh, mid-1920s of Marie-Thérèse Walter. It's quite different from the painting on the right, the woman crying or woman in tears from 1937. Granted, they are a decade apart, but do you really need to know that Marie-Thérèse Walter was soft and sensuous, submissive and adoring, the one on the left? and that Dora Maar, the model for the one on the right, was not. She was a surrealist artist photographer in her own right. She uh, was a strong personality, and when she was around Picasso, she had a tendency to cry, as he himself said. Nor do you need to know, really, that in the 1925 painting, it was at the height of the Roaring Twenties, when everything seemed optimistic and the economies were growing and the art was just uh, flourishing in so many incredible ways in Paris. 
Whereas on the right, uh, it's one of the, it's this, the, the woman in tears is one of a series of paintings that Picasso made after his famous Guernica, which is a, a dirge about the violence of the Spanish Civil War. All of those contextual and biographical details can shed insight into them. But even without them, these works stand on their own. The painting on the left is one clearly of curves, of harmony, of rest. It's called the dream. Um, it's a peaceful painting. The one on the right is clearly not, with its angular shapes and the, the tears cascading down and the uh, acidic colors. So this is what we're addressing uh, tonight in Louise Bourgeois' work. And I'll give you one more example of two other artists. Um, the, the sculpture on the left by Joseph Cornell from the early 1950s, we approach it as an object, a curious object. It is a box, glass-fronted with a drawer, objects inside the box, inside the drawer. The image is a reference to an art historical source and that the model for that Renaissance painting, the Medici Princess, has her own story. But most people respond to Cornell's works even without knowing that the Medici princess in, the, in, in this uh, box died at a young age, and that Cornell, 20 years earlier, had started making his boxes partly as a way to amuse his brother, who was an invalid. The object stands perfectly well on its own, and in fact, it invites people to invent associations and reasons and connections with it. The painting on the right by Alberto Giacometti from 1956-57 when it was exhibited and published in 1957, it was hailed as an icon of expressing existentialist angst, which it does indeed, and Giacometti was indeed deeply involved with existentialist thought. Whether you consider it existentialist or not, you can see that there is a figure in there. It's titled Annette, his wife Annette. You can see there's a figure in there, but you can barely make her out. Her physical form and her individuality, her character, all aspects of her have been nearly obliterated by this deluge of gray paint. That struggle of the individual against something massive and overwhelming is fundamental. You don't need to know that the painting was begun uh, with Giacometti facing his wife as his model and it had colors and strong, clear forms, incisive lines and details. And they were having a rough time in their marriage, so he ended up repainting it from memory at night alone, in which case he obliterated her in a kind of pictorial act of aggression. Again, all interesting biographical and contextual information, but you don't need it to respond directly to the works of art. So let's see how this plays out in Bourgeois. First of all, it's important to know that when Bourgeois became a sculptor, she had started in sculpture and painting in Paris, turned to painting in the 40s. Uh, but when she turned to sculpture in the late mid to late 1940s, she was not prone to speaking about herself. And what you're going to hear uh, through the course of this uh, lecture about the details of her life were not known until the mid-1970s, and especially 1982. We'll come back to how she did that. This is to just give you the background, uh, which would subsequently become so important to her art. On the left is a photograph of the young Louise with her mother and father in 1916. He's wearing a military uniform being in the, uh, during World War I. They're, the two parents, 
His name, by the way, was Louis, and so she was named after him, Louise. Her parents were young, very handsome, very stylish, attractive, active, and he was quite athletic. On the right is an even earlier uh, photograph of her mother in 1911, uh, folding the tapestries, which were the family business. Uh, she, the mother, was uh, responsible for restoring repairing older tapestries, and uh, her husband ran the gallery in Paris where they sold the tapestries, and you can see that they're tapestries that hung bed hangings, uh, upholstery for chairs. These elements of her biography will recur many, many years later. Having been born in 1911 uh, in the area of Paris, and having lived with her family in the area of Paris, uh, Louise studied at the University of Paris, and then she began tinkering around with painting and sculpture and drawing, but she also bought and sold contemporary art prints as a way to earn some income. In 1938, she met Robert Goldwater, an art historian specializing in primitive art and its relationship to modern art. He was very active among artists. He knew, for example, while he was in Paris, he knew De Chirico, Dali, and others. On the left is their wedding photograph from 1938. Um, they both moved, he was there on a research fellowship. Uh, they went and uh, they returned to New York where Louise would continue to live for the rest of her life um, in late 1938. So you realize that she's been living in New York for well over 70 years. On the right is a photograph of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Goldwater um, in uh, a town on Long Island one summer uh, around 1944. You can see that there's nothing angst-ridden or dramatic about her in either of these. She's a very attractive woman. She had beautiful long hair. She's very stylish. She was partial to clothes uh, designed by Chanel, for example. And she came intending to continue her work as an artist, but for the most part, she had to adjust to being known primarily as Robert Goldwater's wife. And she said that this was a hard, later she said this is hard for her to take. I think many women can relate to that, but in those days, in, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, it was particularly strong. Her other role uh, here, as you can see, is a photograph of Louise with her son, Jean-Louis, who was born in 1940, the second of their three sons. On the right is a photograph of her in one of the rooms in their apartment which she used as her studio for painting and drawing. And you can see a couple of sculptural objects on the table. There's a bowling ball, for example, with a little hat on it. So she was experimenting with things that she uh, did not ultimately pursue. But this question of identity, who was she, French or American, um, an individual, an artist, a wife, a mother, is manifested in her paintings. And these paintings from about 1944 to 47 are called Housewoman. Immensely ahead of their time, if you think 1947 is a long time before the feminist movement emerged strongly in the early 1960s. The idea that the woman is nude and therefore sexualized, um, but enveloped to one to greater or lesser degree by house, apartment building, public building, but basically domestic buildings. And that is the, the autobiography element is clear about her being the attractive young woman who comes from France and suddenly has to fit into this domestic 
uh, role, but it's certainly not specific to that. It is something that is uh, widely recognized instantly by virtually every woman who walks into the gallery upstairs and sees these paintings. I would point out that these paintings are emphasizing her thoughts and her feelings in the present. This is how she is feeling in the 1940s. There's no reference backward. Her first uh, group of sculptures for which she became recognized um, were a group called the Personage. Um, there's a group of them upstairs. There's actually quite a few more than what you can see in this show. Um, the total number of them, they've all been dispersed just to such an extent that it's hard to get an idea of how they all balance each other out, but they were meant to be seen as a group. Um, the, I'll just read them off for you. The one on the left is called Persistent Antagonism, a title made up later, The Observer, The Listening One, and Dagger Child. The Dagger Child is widely interpreted as being four pieces of wood attached together with pointed ends pointing upward and that the little tiny element with the red dot on it, the red square on it, is, is uh, another more specifically knife element. Um, in typical surrealist fashion, she often titled her works after they were made and sometimes years afterward. Now, if you look at these, let's look at them in the context. For one thing, if you are to listen to interviews done much later in Louise's life, in the 1980s and 90s and beyond, she would say that really her husband had no impact on her art. It's not what she said earlier on. Earlier on, she said that he supported her art and that she attended classes and she learned a lot from him and ultimately she got kind of sick of art history. But if you stick with what the, the, the party line is, it's that his expertise had no impact on her art. Well, I show you here, remembering again the, the, the grouping of these forms, the roughness of them, their abstraction and yet their reference to being somehow a figure standing or two figures standing. And then on the left I show you um, funerary markers from Melanesia, which is um, an area of the Pacific, South Pacific, uh, north of Australia. And these are painted wood. Each one of them is an individual work, but they are seen together in burial areas. This is precisely the sort of thing that um, she and Robert were talking about avidly when they first met, and subsequently he published the book, uh, Primitivism and Modern Art, in 1938. So part of her attraction to him was his ability to connect modern art with more fundamental, primeval uh, aspects of art and experience. On the right is an African uh, piece from West Africa where you can see more of a figural reference. Also, what was happening in New York at this time? Louise, if you read the literature, and this is one of the things I find rather disconcerting, is the literature, as it so often does with major artists, tends to treat them as if they developed all on their own somewhat in a vacuum, which of course is almost never the case. And so I show you a painting, one of the pictographs by Adolf Gottlieb from 1944. And on the right, uh, a, a wood figure carved by Isama Noguchi and assembled in 1945, simply called Man. Um, the man has rather prominent genitalia, I might point out. Um, if you, I don't think we have a pointer up here. Um, but if you look at forms like
because um, Gottlieb exhibited his pictographs at the end of 1942 and subsequently in New York. Noguchi exhibited this and 11 other similar works in a group show at MoMA after the war in 1946, a very influential show called 12 Americans. Um, on the left, I show you a painting by Wifredo Lam from 1950. Wifredo was Cuban-born, African in ancestry, African and Japanese and European. Um, and he had spent the war years in Cuba and, and had developed a new kind of art that was a hybrid of uh, Afro-Cuban sources and Parisian modernism. His works, like this one, which is simply called Totem, were exhibited in New York in a very prominent gallery in 1945, 47, 48, 49, and 50, including this work in 1950. On the right is a piece from the Tank Totem series by David Smith from 1951-52. You get where I'm going here. Um, the, this, this idea of seeking to find ways to portray either human beings, aspects of humanity, supernatural or spiritual references using abstract or nearly abstract terms oriented in a strong vertical axis to suggest a relationship to humans and therefore some kind of connection between the abstraction and us uh, ordinary humans. Louise was very active in the art world as was her husband. She was not unaware of these developments. She also, despite her later disclaimers, um, made references to art history. On the left is a piece from 1948-49 uh, called The Three Graces, done by Louise. It's not known in this country because it's been in a European collection for a long time. And on the right is one of the many Greco-Roman examples of the classical motif of the Three Graces. Well, obviously, Louise has a sense of humor because she's taken those quintessential cuties and turn them all into kind of phallic asparaguses, which may be also a commentary on a specific sculpture done by Max Ernst and shown in, in New York. Uh, not clear if she actually did see it or not, but it was known. So Louise's works, rather than being, uh, as she later would go back and say, I did those personage figures as evocations of my family in France whom I missed. If you look at her diary, and, and a good number of excerpts from her diary have been published, when she actually made these totemic works uh, from in the late 40s and early 50s, she made no reference to that. She said simply in her diary that she was searching to depict standing figures, a figure with a package, a figure leaning against a house, a figure sleeping, a figure waiting, um, in abstract terms that would yet have a symbolic reson resonance with the viewers. It was not until 1976 that she told an interviewer that, oh yes, these are all evocations of my family in France whom I missed so badly during the war. Well, I have no doubt that she missed her family and was worried about them. After all, it was a quite a vicious war, part of it on French territory. But the facts proclaim that, she, that her works were the innovations of an active mind, a sculptor who was beginning to feel her way who was having a dialogue with the past, with what her husband knew, with what she was seeing in New York, with what other painters and especially what other sculptors were doing. And I think to impose later that view is certainly Louise's prerogative, but 
I think it imposes too narrow uh, a perspective on them. And it almost is a decoy that, that just diverts us from thinking about how her works relate to other works. The fact is, is in my opinion, if you put her, her personage sculptures in a room with, uh, with Fredo Lambs and David Smith's and Dorothy Daner's did a, a wonderful totemic piece that's in our collection, Louise's not only hold their own, she blasts some of them out of the room. And that alone is sufficient to guarantee um, the merit or the, the, the significance of her works in the history of art many, many years from now. Also point out that when there were uh, autobiographical references in her work, um, there were two events in the present, not in the past. This is a work called Quarantania, uh, in which she took several of the personage elements and grouped them together on a base. Um, she later explained what it was, and it was not based on the photograph on the right, but you can certainly see how she got the idea. On the right is a photograph of Louise with her three sons, the youngest one, Alain, was about four years old then. In the background on the right is um, her husband, the one without the hat, uh, talking to uh, Charles Prendergast. So when you look back at Quarantania, when you realize that each of those elements was a personage, is now grouped together, and she said, this is actually a family portrait. This is me in the middle. That's her, the only one with a kind of head shape. Um, with her husband, who is very tall, the very thin, tall, undifferentiated form on the right, and her three sons, who are soon going to outgrow her. And in fact, the photograph is a few years earlier before she put this sculpture together. So by that, if you see later photographs, her sons did tower over her because she's a short woman. And she's carrying packages. I like to think of them as grocery bags, but they could also be baggage in another sense. So again, Knowing the source is informative, but even without it, you, you get the impression that this is a group and that they're clustered around the central figure. Um, you need not necessarily have more specific narrative to appreciate the work. In the second series of personages uh, from about 1950 to 1954, she changed her approach and instead of using uh, pretty much uh, solid slats of wood that she would uh, cut, carve, shape, glue, and nail together, she went to a much more highly fragmented and constructivist approach. Um, these are three of them, uh, all in the show upstairs. And again, um, let's just see how this corresponds with, whoops, sorry. Um, that should be right, give me a second. Sorry, I thought I had something else here. Um, the one significant difference here is partly in the way she made it and partly the titles that she chose to assign to them. The one on the left, first of all, all of these are pieces of wood of varying sizes, some of them quite small, sometimes she even used other elements, um, assembled on a pike, literally threaded on a pike. And originally they didn't have a the square metal base. That was not how they were displayed. They were exhibited by drilling a hole in the floor of a gallery, the Peridot Gallery, and stuck in the, in, in the hole. So these uh, figures, if you read them as figures, um, have a fragility and a tenuous quality, first of all. They're not necessarily standing perfectly vertical when they're stuck in holes in the floor. And they also move. You could turn them, I mean, not that you're supposed to, but you could turn them around. 
Even more intriguing is that you could rotate the individual elements so that, for example, if you wanted the red element on top to face a different direction, you could just pivot it. They weren't glued or fixed in place. And now the titles that she did assign at the time, rather than going back later, give us an indication of where she's going in terms of the meaning of her abstract forms. And again, they tend to refer to how she was feeling at the time, not to the past. This is one is called red fragmented figure, fragmented. The one in the middle is called fickle woman. And this one spins quite readily. You can, you can easily turn those elements and that therefore she's fickle. She's always changing her shape, her orientation, her composition. But obviously fickle has other connotations as well. And on the right is the white piece is called spiral woman. It's the beginning of a lifelong motif for her, the spiral, which she associates often with being female and with herself. But you need not necessarily know that either yet, uh, because spirals are an ancient uh, symbol, uh, suggesting continuous evolution and growth and unending change. In some societies, it, it's, it has other more specific meanings. What's happening is, is that Louise, as she was functioning as mother, and now she was recognized for these works, the two series of personages, she was gaining some critical, critical acclaim, but she was still coping with doing housework and errands and cooking and cleaning and being a wife to the prestigious professor at NYU um, and being a woman in a very strongly male-dominated art world at the time. She was struggling with deep feelings of inadequacy and depression. Her diary reveals this. Um, she says that she started looking into psychology at the time and psychoanalysis, but initially at this point she was uh, just doing some light reading. She studied some psychology as an undergraduate in Paris. Um, what happens though is, sorry, is there's a sudden gap. Here she's created these marvelous works. She's had two successful exhibitions at a gallery. There's been critical acclaim and actually one of the personages was bought by Alfred Barr for the Museum of Modern Art. Um, then Louise disappears as an artist. Periodically, she has, through the decades, if you look, there are periods when she cannot function. It's just too much. She's suffered all her life from depression. I think this is one of the reasons why I really felt drawn to her work, because I'm a lifelong depressive too, and she doesn't take Prozac. Um, it would, she doesn't want to dull the pain. The pain is the source of her creativity. Uh, but she's also a very angry woman. She has a terrible temper. She has a deep-seated rage. But at this point in her life, that hasn't become clear to her yet. She knows that she becomes debilitated by, by depression and anxiety, and she confides this to her diary, and she, and she worries about how this might you know, affect her marriage, and she needs to focus and get her act together. Well, she really intensively began to study psychology. In fact, um, she not only did a great deal of reading, she uh, undertook, began anyway, psychoanalysis um, in the early 1960s. Uh, did it for, so we think, about two years. It's not a widely known fact. Um, and then she, she walked away from it. Analysis takes years and years and years. She walked away from it, and the only reason she gave is she says, not working, <laughs> not working for me. And it may be because of psychoanalysis in New York at that time and still today is so heavily 
Freudian in very traditional and sometimes uncritical ways. I cannot see how she would have warmed up to it. But it did break the creative block that she was experiencing between 1955 and 1960. And this is what she emerges with, the one on the upper left. And if you've seen, there's a room of such things upstairs. This is the, it's a piece called Fiette, which means little girl in French. It's made of latex over plaster. And um, if you look at the literature, people ask her about these works, they ask her really pretty stupid questions most of the time, and she gives really pretty stupid and evasive answers. Um, no one just seems to see the obvious here. Isn't there a lot of female rage expressed in this? It seems so obvious, women see it. When you walk in a gallery and you see this, this penis, oversized, big, hanging from the ceiling, pierced at its tip so the wire can go through it. And the original was strung up from the ceiling on a meat hook. <laughs> Clearly, a little Freud goes a long way. <laughs> also, she um, was realizing that her, her formidable intelligence allowed her to think things through, and if not control her emotions, at least manifest them in some way. It's at this point that she starts looking to her art as a way to deal with, to struggle with, to express and manifest her anger, her rage, her feelings about things. Um, what is also not noted in the literature, which I find kind of amazing, is here's a woman when she lived in Paris in 1937-38, she lived in a building upstairs from André Breton's art gallery, the Gradiva Art Gallery. She saw the, the, the Surrealists, she knew all about them, they had been the hottest thing in Paris since 1925. Uh, in 1936 they had this huge exhibition that just fetishized women. There were more naked mannequins and partial figures and dismembered female nudes in that exhibition than anything that had been seen anywhere before that date. Um, Louise knew this. The, some of the more famous works, the ones that had more lasting value, were the ones like the one on the lower right, done in 1932 by Alberto Giacometti during his surrealist phase, called Woman with Her Throat Cut. And this is indicative of the sadomasochistic approach of a number of the male surrealists to the female subject in art. And so you have this it's shown on the floor. So first of all, it is a nude female body in abstract terms that is lying on the floor with her legs splayed because she's been raped. And the long element on the far right, that long skinny element, snake-like element, the tip of that is her head, which is arched back and screaming, and the long neck has got a cut. So this was Giacometti's Freudian-inspired um, uh, work. He had a fantasy. He didn't have very healthy um, relationships with women. Um, I did my dissertation on Giacometti. I got to know way too much about his attitude towards women. Um, but I think the Louise, Louise is so smart. I think that this in some part, her penises, especially the fillet hanging from the ceiling, is a woman artist's response in the 1960s to what the male artists were doing in Paris when she left, at the time she left, like the Giacometti and the Breton um, circle were doing. 
So I can't prove that, but I think that it's important to open ourselves up to such possibilities. In this sense, the past does exist in this work, but the presence is very much stronger. Her anger was her present anger, the anger she felt in 1968. The date is not coincidental either. 1968 was a year of a great many upheavals and changes, as we all know, in America and abroad. And um, the feminist movement had burst upon the scene, enabling a lot of women artists to express their anger and their resentment about how they were marginalized in the art world. Here's a work in the show upstairs, 1974. Between the, the breast and penis works of the 1960s and what would become her mature, um, I think her great style from about 1978 onward of, of constructed environments, this is the one that's a transition piece. It's her first environment type piece. Um, if you look at it, it's kind of hard to determine what it is. It's obviously very theatrical. It's set like a stage, a proscenium in a theater. It's set on black cloth. Uh, it used to be just ordinary cotton. It's now black velvet, which adds a kind of creepier feel to it. Um, it's bathed in red light, uh, so red light suggesting all kinds of things like passion and violence and the red light district. I mean, red has an infinite number of associations, most of them quite intense. Most people react to this quite visually as kind of wow. And then they read the label and find out what it's about. It is literally Louise's applying her Freudian and other psych psychological knowledge of her own background, her own family history, to um, art. She was working through her anger towards her father, not that she ever really worked all the way through it, but she was working through it in this piece literally to make it. She stood in the middle of it modeling these mounds around it as a photograph of her, which I couldn't find, showing her with these forms over her head and her hands in this latex, all kind of um, creepy, but also kind of therapeutic for her. The subject is, as she's remembering in her youth, how her father became quite domineering, his very strong personality, how he dominated his wife and uh, his three children, and they sat around the dinner table and had to listen to him always be right about everything, decide everything, determine what was to be discussed, um, and that suddenly they'd had enough, and the mother and three children reached over, pulled the father onto the table, hacked him to pieces, and ate him. <laughs> it's quite an infantile fantasy. It's very much on the level of Giacometti's woman with her throat cut. It's a, it's a, a fantasy of violence, which um, my experiment when I've been taking people through personally through the show is to ask people, is first they look at it, I stand in front of the label so they can't see it. And then I tell them what the subject is. And consistently, nearly all of the adults, I haven't done children, um, it's not a show I would like to explain to too many children, um, but taking through adults, when they, they learn that what the subject is, is they, they're disappointed. They go, oh, that's stupid. You know, it's, it's, it's like they, they liked it better before they knew what the specific autobiographical narrative was about. And I think that's one of the challenges in Louise's work, is to define what, when the autobiography is helpful to some people and not to others. The autobiographical narrative element of this may speak very strongly to someone else. I mean, I can imagine if this said the destruction of the mother and I was 19, I probably would have related really well to it. But 
when you're an adult, remember that she was creating this at the age of 63. Um, that's why I consider it a transitional work. Important historically, fascinating visually, but not as sophisticated um, as some of her subsequent works, and not as profound, I think. Um, also, I think that um, there hasn't been enough attention paid to uh, Louise's many layers of references. Um, obviously Freudian references, obviously uh, autobiographical, but also that exhibition I mentioned in Paris in 1938 that had, uh, that was the first part of it was just a row of naked female mannequins distorted, dressed up, or otherwise perverted by male artists. And then you walked into this larger room and the ceiling, where the paintings were, and it was dark, at least at the opening, and the ceiling was done um, by Marcel Duchamp uh, made out of 1,200 coal sacks that they'd actually taken from a coal yard and hung up. And in the middle was an artificial um, brazier, like a, a, a heat source. But they couldn't use real heat for fire hazard reasons, so they used red lights to illuminate it. So it, that made a very strong impression on people. This was an environment that you walked under. You can see how, how the, the, the the bags hang fairly closely to people's heads. There's an oppressive feeling about it. And this bathed in this, this uh, hideous red light, um, I think it must have made an impression, although I don't claim that she was making a specific reference to it. It may have been, again, her response to all these male chauvinists in this show. It's impossible anyway. And also on the right um, is a well-known sculpture, also from his Surrealist period by Giacometti, called the Palace at 4 a.m., which is a, like a miniature stage set, uh, set and it, it refers to his anger about his mother. flying out the window and escaping. So um, Louise is smart enough to know that she was building on and responding to such sources, if not overtly, then indirectly or subconsciously. Well, after the destruction of the father in 1974, it took her a few years to sort of assimilate and, and start creating works that incorporated her personal narrative um, in ways that had more universal appeal. And her diary throughout much of her life in the, from the 50s through the 80s uh, talks about trying to find uh, a vocabulary that is essentially abstract, meaning it does not depict the body, um, and yet has symbolic meanings that communicate with, with people. She wants her art to communicate. Um, so let me give you the details of what will inform her subsequent work. On the left is a photograph, a family photograph, on vacation in Nice in the south of France in uh, 1923. In the center is young Louise, her brother is to one side, her father still dashing in middle age is on the right, and then you would think that would be the mother. It's not. It's the mistress. When World War I ended, 1918, Louise's mother was one of millions who contracted the very um, frightening Spanish influenza, killed millions of people. Her mother survived, but she was permanently weakened. She had lung problems and health problems the rest of her life. 
She no longer was an active companion for her husband. He then had a series of affairs outside the home. And then um, he hired a tutor. Now, it was not normal for middle, upper middle class uh, families who had their work at home. After all, the tapestry workshop was in one wing of their home. Um, to bring in tutors to supplement the local educational system. And so uh, a woman from England, first name Sadie, was hired to be the English tutor, specifically for Louise, who was the brightest of the children and quite precocious. Um, well, Sadie became his live-in mistress. She was his live-in mistress for just over a decade. And so when you realize that Louise, who had been her father's favorite, uh, was no longer the favorite. When you realize that her beloved mother was kind of cast aside and yet she kept working and running the tapestry atelier, thereby providing income for the family. Um, and Sadie didn't exactly eat in the servants' quarters. She sat at the dinner table with them and she went on the vacations with them. This is extremely difficult for anyone to deal with, but a sensitive young girl in adolescence, it was devastating. Um, on the right is a photograph of the grown-up Louise in New York. Her father had come to New York for a visit in 1948, and this was taken at a restaurant. Um, ostensibly, during this or a similar occasion, he said, oh, do you remember the good old, old days at uh, Choisy, which is the, their family home, their family residence in Choisy, France? And she supposedly looked at him and said, I don't know what you mean. So um, you can see that there was a disconnect there, and her father coming seems to have accelerated her interest in her rage and then her interest in exploring these. So that brings us to the real meat of the matter. Um, if all of Louise's works you know, fell off a cliff and the cells remained, she would, I think, be recognized as one of the great sculptors of modern times. Here's a photograph of two of the cells, cell as in C-E-L-L cell as in prison cell, cell as in biology, a single-celled organism. Um, the cells that she began, actually the very first one was done in 1978 as a performance piece. Uh, the next one was done in 1986, also as a performance piece, but continued to exist thereafter. And then she started making cells that were not for performance pieces, although she and the select few could enter in them um, by invitation. The cells are distinct uh, architectural-like spaces in which she defines a space, sets it off an interior space away from the reality that we inhabit. Um, on the right is a piece called Precious Liquids. It's actually made out of a water tower of the type that were um, and still are on top of many New York apartment houses. Um, she salvaged it from one that was being torn down. On the left is one of uh, two cells known as the red room cells, which consist of wooden doors circled, you know, kind of like a wagon train to shut out the world. This is a close-up of one of the red rooms. This is from 1990 to 93. She didn't work on just one at a time. Um, in 1980, her husband died in 1973. I should have said that. I think that her husband's death in 1973 may have triggered her willingness to just let her rage and her sorrow and all her emotions come out. 
I think that um, Roberts dying in 1973 might have been one of the triggers for making the destruction of the father because he wasn't there as the, the calming anchor to her life, um, although he had his own emotions, uh, sometimes quite strong. Um, at any rate, this is the Red Room, subtitled Child. There's two of them. They're both on view upstairs, and that's unusual because they were separated. So it's useful for you to see them now, as you may never see them together again, or at least not for many, many years. Um, so this is what you see on the outside, these doors huddled in a circle. In fact, there is an entranceway. There's one door that's, that is kept open so that you can go in in a kind of circular, spiral way. This one you can see through this one door with a glass window. So you can peer inside like a voyeur into somebody else's space, somebody else's life. It's a glass door with mesh reinforcement so that you can't even break in if you wanted to. You can see it's been smashed in the lower right and yet it, it doesn't collapse because of the wire mesh. This is a real serious keep out of here type work. Also the door says the P is rubbed off but it reads private if you put a P in front of it. But curiously, it doesn't say that facing outward. It says it facing inward. This is what happens to people who actually are allowed to step in. There's a barrier ac across because there's no way we could let you know, hundreds of thousands of people try and go inside this thing. There's so many elements. What happens when you walk in, and that's what this photograph conveys, is you can walk in and then you stop. There is no way you can move around in this. This is a completely filled, horror vacui, claustrophobic space, which for Louise is comforting because she's agoraphobic, which is the opposite of claustrophobic. Um, there are very clear, specific references to her family and past. These uh, spools of brightly colored, fine quality thread refer to the family business of, of tapestry restoration. But I think of greater, it, there's just so many things you can't point them all out. But a particular interest just under the window and on that round pedestal are hands, human hands that have been cast in wax. Some of them have been um, made in red glass at the back of the piece. And they're, they're grasped. There's always one hand holding another, sometimes two hands holding one hand, even two hands holding two hands. This becomes a kind, you can see it here on the shelf uh, on the right, the hands holding hands by the wrist. They're always a larger hand holding a smaller hand. It's clearly a parental reference to, you know, how when a child is small, you're always holding them by the hand, or if they step off the curb, you grab them and pull them back. Um, when you're going into church, you hold their hand. It's just part of the normal contact of adult to parent to child. It's, it's a gesture also of, that can, can be taken many ways, a protective gesture, a gesture of affection, a gesture of control, of ownership. And this is the beginning of where I think Louise's um, art is beginning to have this ambiguity that I think becomes one of the greatest assets of her work. Are these hands being held because they're protective or because they're restraining? And if they're restraining, is it in a good way or a bad way? And there is no answer. It's unresolved, as are so many things in life. On the left, I'm just showing a detail of some of the objects in there which don't seem to have a there's no explanation from her on what they specifically meant. Uh, but, you know, the lantern, which most houses had for when the electricity went out, appears to be the head of what was a rocking horse or a rocking deer. And my favorite element is this piece. I think she writes this piece down here. And so it seems to be the word is off, off, and it means loose. 
words. Then there's the red cell of the parents, created at the same time as, as a pendant to the child's room. This, by comparison, is symmetrical, ordered, and neat. It has, you can see that it has They look like bookends. You turn them around, and there's uh, a very sexy female tush on each one of them. So again, uh, probably a reference to you know the hidden naughtiness of having uh, Sadie in the house. But um, on the left, this shows you the access point, the entrance, and the fact that in the parents' uh, room it says "ferme la porte," which means close the door. Um, that obviously signals, you know, get out of here, close the door, um, which doesn't necessarily have to refer to anything to Louise. I think that's anyone. It's a universally expressive symbol of close the door, I want to be alone, close the door, I don't want you here. Um, what I think is an intriguing after effect of this composition is that since you can't go in it, if you walk into where it says Ferme la Porte and you go to I think as a, another really quite wonderful element suggesting that you never really can perceive your parents directly. It's always an indirect or somehow one, pace, one step removed from their reality. And it's those kind of nuances um, that I think make some of her works really terrifically uh, interesting. Now having done the Red Rooms where the circles shut out the world and they had a completely interior space, I was dumbfounded to discover that there's another cell, in fact possibly two or three, but this is the only one I really know of for sure, um, that are quite the contrary. And that's one of the things that, that is not widely known is until all of her cells are, are seen, and under, it's hard to tell how they exist as a totality. Each one expresses certain things, but how, taken together, what do they express? I asked for this work to be uh, lent to us for this, just for the Hirschhorn, because I was intrigued how it was, to me, literally the opposite of the Red Rooms. This is an untitled cell, just called 12 Oval Mirrors, because that's what it's made out of, and 12 wooden chairs, actually 14. Um, this work has zero autobiographical references. The inside and the outside have equal strength and they are intended for the audience. The purpose of these, these, this work is for two individuals, the, the mirrors, 10 of the 12 mirrors pivot. Um, we had to stop letting people use them because they are getting a little beat up, but they pivot and therefore let you step inside. Inside are two chairs, two people sit down, facing each other almost knee to knee, contemplating each other. And that's the point of it. Louise wrote in her diary, she said, it's all about the present. It's about, it all comes down to two people relating one to the other, about the pain, about the pleasure. And that, she didn't write it about this work specifically. She, in fact, wrote it a few years before she made it. But that's what this is about. And the twist comes in that the mirrors have different shapes. They're all oval in contour. 
but each one has a flat side, which is a, a factual, accurate, direct mirror. And then alternately on the other sides, they are either concave or convex, so that you see yourself as in funhouse mirrors, you know, like stretched really thin or going really fat or cut off into different pieces. And in fact, when you sit in the chairs inside and you look at the person opposite, it's, it's a little uncomfortable to keep looking at someone across from you, so of course you're going to look up once in a while, and what you see is yourself above their head in a mirror directly behind them, and you're distorted. You're floating above them. You've been shrunk into nothingness compared to them. So, um, and you can sit there and pivot the mirrors so you can see yourself with all kinds of distortions around you and explore those distortions visually and verbally with the person in there with you. On the outside, the chairs are for people who are waiting or there's only one of them. And so they do the same thing, although without the dialogue aspect of it. So at the same time, she's making these red rooms, which are so clearly references to her childhood and her parents and the um, trauma that she associates with them. At the same time, she's making a work like this, which is all about outreach, all about the present, all about the possibilities, challenging each other and ourselves to question how we perceive each other and how the distortions may creep in. I think one of the ways that, one of the ways that her approach to doing the cell sculptures became more, uh, ten, tended more towards universal communication and symbols that, that, that uh, are not specifically about her past was in working on individual sculptures, not the cells, but pieces like this. Um, these are two figure sculptures, both of polished bronze, both hanging from the ceiling by a wire, completely different size, one tiny, one life size. Um, the one on the left is called Spiral Woman. And, you know, the spiral, as I pointed out, there's layers here. There's the obvious image, which is the, the body that appears to be female hanging there with her arms, um, encased, just as the, the housewoman paintings of 1945-47 had the, the female body encased in a house or an apartment building, now it's encased in something more abstract, less specific, and that is a spiral. And again, you can look to all kinds of sources for interpretations of the symbolism of the spiral, that of continuous evolution, um, for example. But the way it's depicted here, it's very clearly there's no real beginning and no end. There doesn't seem to be a real stop, a start, and a real end. And Louise confessed that this expressed, um, I think uh, many of us relate immediately, the sense of, first of all, you're helpless. You're strung up in midair. And secondly, you're encased in this continuous movement, the way we are in our daily lives. Movement, 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 movement. Um, not necessarily going anywhere, but lots of movement. Um, and that's where I think in her figure sculptures, I don't really think that, that you know, the breasts and penises are really going to be remembered after... Um, uh, the wars between the sexes have, have finally finished, if they ever do. I think it's works like this. The one on the right, for example, um, began as an element of another work for a cell, and then she took the, the, the plaster cast um, of an actual body, her assistant, Jerry Gorvoy, um, male assistant, cast his body. She took the cast and she torqued it. So instead of, he was, it was originally just sort of arching up lightly, like someone having a spasm on a bed. Um, and she took this and she contorted it so that his, the fingertips almost touched the heels. A really 
difficult and almost painful position. And when you realize that this is strung up from the pelvic area, from the ceiling, it adds to that sense of discomfort, shall we say. Although it is not directly referring, it's not from the genitalia, it's literally from the center of your balance. Um, so again, there's a sense of helplessness. Naked, headless, can't seem to do anything except reach toward itself in a backward way, which is not necessarily very productive. And then for this one, the, the title, as some but not all of her works have, are very um, important titles, titles that really contribute to our perception or insights into the work. This is called The Arch of Hysteria. Well, the arch is quite there in the, in the pose of the body. And the hysteria, I think, certainly, I mean, if this doesn't express what it feels like to be hysterical, um, it'd be very hard-pressed to find another more uh, tortured way of being hung up in midair with um, uh, bending backward in a really painful way. And Louise is always aware of gender, although in later years she's gotten kind of tired as being classified as a woman artist. She said she made this, and there's actually an, uh, a diary entry she made in 1949. This is from 1993. So this woman has a very long memory, and there's layers of reflection and association, conscious and unconscious, in them. She said she called it that because Freud and others coined the term hysteria to refer to the irrational emotionality of women, referring to the, the female organs. And he, she said, I wanted to make this arch of hysteria specifically of a male body because it's quite clear to her that men get hysterical too. So again, this is a reference not to the past, but very much to the present. But to return to her cells, some of them, this is actually one of the earlier ones, um, very specific references as in the Red Room parent and child uh, sculptures. On the left is a photograph of Louise at the age of four and a half in front of their home in Choisy. Um, the white portion directly behind her was the house, the part that's slightly grayed out to the left behind her. That was the uh, tapestry workshop. And it was in this home that the drama of uh, you know, being daddy's favorite and then being cast aside for the mistress, mommy being beautiful and healthy and then becoming sick and, and, and weak, uh, all of that transpired here. So the work on the right, titled Cell, subtitled Choisy. Inside is a minutely, uh, cra beautifully crafted, it's not overly detailed, but uh, Louise actually became a master carver in marble during trips to Italy during the 60s. And then in later years she has employed practiciens to carve for her, but this one she carved herself. It is a scale model of that house. It is enclosed in a cage, and when you go upstairs in the installation, I deliberately segregated the red rooms and the oval mirrors from the other pieces, the four other cells, that consist specifically of wire metal cages. These are beyond the circular ones of the uh, red rooms, for example, and the oval mirrors. These are completely enclosed. There's no getting in or out except through a doorway, and most people don't realize that each one of these has a door. Part of... Uh, Did and you had this experience. So you can imagine with the door open, 
being invited to go in and look at the model to walk under a real heavy-duty guillotine. Now, you can see that the autobiographical reference is clear, but it's not limited to that. Let me just show you a couple of other views. Um, this is a side view. For example, if you really, really wanted to, there's an opening here and a collapse here, which is You could get in or get out. You could enter or escape, uh, literally through the kind of side, side exit. Um, and then when you get up really close to the piece in front, on the right, you can see, especially when you have dramatic lighting, this was photographed in her studio. It's a, a former factory building in Brooklyn where you know, no museum lighting or anything. And so the photographer set up his lights to focus on the piece. And you can see how really ominous it looks in that kind of setting. And so I just ask, if you didn't know that it was Louise's childhood home, but you can see clearly it's a home, an upper middle class home, three stories, nice roof, beautifully proportioned windows. Um, does it not also invite us to contemplate a more universal application? Don't many of us want to go home again in a sense? Do we want to not, I, I know I'm really getting tired of being a grown up. I'd like to be a kid and get taken care of again. Can't be done. You go back and visit your memories, for example, and of course memory is selective. We remember what we want to remember and try and shut out the things that aren't so nice. Um, so it can be, uh, it, one can see this as a, a metaphor for, um, it's dangerous to try and go into the past. It's dangerous to try and go home again in that sense. Um, Louise said that in a broader sense, uh, not necessarily referring to her, she said, she said, I was trying to convey the idea that, you know, many people think of the home as a place of safety. For her, it never really was. And so she thinks of the home as being a place where people destroy each other. Really depressing and sad. I personally, when I first looked at this, um, thought of a variety of interpretations like that. But then I took an elderly, a group of elderly people. One, one gentleman was particularly old. And his question, I thought, was quite astute. Before I'd start in my little spiel about the, the work, he said, is that a retirement home? <laughs> so think about that. That's what he saw in it. You know, entering there is death. So the idea that we bring with us our own histories, our own emotions, our own free associations, and our own fears is essential to experiencing Louise's work. And I urge you not to, to read the labels too much. I deliberately restricted the amount of that kind of information. It's, sorry. It's all out before the show. It's not right next to, to most of the works. Because if you open yourself up and approach them the way you would any um, uh, work of art and see what you want to see, see what you don't want to see in it. Um, and it's that, that balance between the specific and the universal that I think makes some of her pieces uh, really great. And then there's her most famous motif um, of spiders. This is the spider cell from 1997. Um, this is a piece in which I think there's a really strong disconnect between most viewers and what Louise intended. Um, first of all, this is very tall. Uh, if you've been upstairs to see it, you can see that the top leg extends up, literally up into our coffered ceiling. It's 17 feet tall. Um, these are steel and bronze legs. They're very gangly, but they're also quite large and 
they don't move. They come down to delicate little points, but they, they stay. Um, if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you keep spiders as personal pets and find them warm and cuddly? Would I have any takers? I doubt it, because human beings are essentially hardwired from our ancient days of you know, needing to survive in the wild. We recoil from things like spiders and snakes. Um, they're not welcoming creatures. And so when we first approach this work, it is an ominous, at least to nearly everybody, it's ominous, it's creepy, it's dangerous. What is this spider doing on this cage? Um, oh, there's stuff inside the cage. And you can see quite clearly, we all know these about get really old. We all know we've got very tiny holes with all the rakes and we don't know what Louise could go in and sit in her chair. Um, on the sides of the, uh, this sculpture, you can see it's roofed over too. There is no getting in and out except by the door of these pieces. Um, our tapestries, old tapestries, on the right is a detail of one of the little cherub with his genitalia gone. That wasn't Louise being um, angry again. It was an example of uh, the kind of tapestries her mother would get. They would be sent to her to try and repair because people had done things like that and now the new owners wanted to have it look normal again. Um, kind of like taking the fig leaf off a statue. In fact, when the, the home in Choisy um, was demolished um, and when the family gradually was dying off um, in France, uh, Louise received her share of the family possessions, which included quite a number of tapestries, some of which she started to repair and some of which she just used. It's hard to see, but this is a very frayed piece. You can literally see through it. It's tattered, which gives an impression of uh, you know, not only great age, but there's deterioration and decay going on. So you get giant spiders and decay. And then you look up, and this is actually how you see it unless you can get inside, is you're looking through first one, then another layer of mesh, wire mesh fencing. Looking underneath the body of the spider, this is the abdomen of the spider, and that's when you kind of go, aha, it's a mother spider. It's a pregnant female and there's eggs inside. They are in fact glass eggs, very fragile, some of them wrapped in fabric. What does that do to our interpretation? Well, it does make us stop now and question, is this an aggressive, ominous spider, or is this just, you know, a, a mommy trying to protect her uh, soon-to-be offspring? And then, if you think about the experience inside, if you sit in that chair, that chair is directly underneath the eggs. It somehow suggests that you sitting there are descended somehow from this spider, perhaps. Um, Aside from the fact that it's rather creepy to sit with a 17-foot spider over and around you, um, there's little items hanging, and they're quite um, reassuring in a way. So there's an empty bottle of Shalimar perfume. There's an old-fashioned watch hanging there. There's a locket. In other words, they're personal items, items of you know, family, a child, the sort of things you find in, in old dresser drawers. Um, and so there's this ambiguity again. Here is this creepy, scary, giant spider, and yet inside, if you can get inside, feel safe. You've got your little tchotchkes, your little reminders of your, you know, your favorite perfume, your favorite piece of jewelry. And so um, 
I like to live with that ambiguity. I think that's where the strength of such works lie because things aren't clear cut. If you listen to what Louise intended by her spiders, she said they are symbols in a way indirect portraits of her mother, her mother who was the master weaver of the tapestry family, the mother who tried to protect her children but she was too fragile. And you think about it, spiders when they're not 17 feet tall and made out of steel, they're usually small and extremely fragile. You can just, and they're gone. So um, again, there's this, this contradiction. Louise sees this as a protective, protective creature. Most of the rest of us see it as threatening. Is that not somehow appropriate for, for basically modern life where sometimes you think one thing is so and it turns out to be the opposite? You think something was safe? You thought your 401k was safe. Not anymore. So that kind of ambiguity in life, um, we don't want things to be ambiguous and uncertain, but they are. And then this piece, I'm sorry, I don't have really good photographs of this piece. Um, this is a piece also in that room and a little bit harder to see, so I'm going to point out, I'm going to go over and point out what it is. Um, first of all, this door, in fact, this door, this hole is this door. The door opens and closes on the opposite side of the three corners. The objects are roughly squares of tools. tools. Uh, this door comes to a sort of fractal in the middle, which is uh, gold granite. This is very thin glass orbs on top of the other. marble, and on it are three hands uh, that have been beautifully carved, lifelike, realistic. And then around the, the cage, you have the three mirrors that pivot so they can reflect different things. But by and large, um, as we have it upstairs, it's, it's done so that from various angles you can see the potential here. They focus on the, the marble in the middle. They reflect and amplify it. Here's another uh, view of it where you can see the effect of the mirrors. And you can see that the mirrors also reflect outward. They're double-sided mirrors. So they can reflect the people outside of them, us, looking in. You can also see, for example, that you can't climb in and out of here because the ventilation is so wide open. But if you were to try, you would fall very, very far inside. It's pretty good practice. Um, these are things, too, that always catch my ear. So there is an implied sense of fragility in each of these surrounding elements. The stone is solid and strong in the center, but it's surrounded by fragile, breakable, distorted things. The ceramic element, for example, is um, distorted. It, something went wrong when it was being um, thrown on the wheel. It's all distorted and damaged. Here's where I think you can see that more clearly. In fact, you can see it more in the mirror. the two hands that are held together like this, the pair of hands, are small, old, and presumably female, although you can't really tell, it's just their size that suggests that. 
and they're, they're there lying loosely clasped. They're not active, they're not taking any, expressing anything in particular, they're just there. And then reaching across is the long, longer arm, um, younger, larger, stronger, healthier, reaching out to grasp the two hands. Now, it may help to know that these are Louise's hands and that of her assistant, longtime assistant and friend, Jerry Gorovoy, but you don't need to know that because universally, you think about it. If you have a, a person, female and elderly, young and strong, it doesn't really matter, but if you have someone who is lying there, their hands are passive, they're not taking an action. And then you have another hand that is strong reaching out and holding them. It's a gesture perhaps of affection, but it's also a gesture of reassurance. So if we live in a world where we are surrounded by fragile, breakable, damaged, and deteriorating things, things in the abstract sense, the one constant that keeps us safe and reassured is human connection. And to me, that's why I wanted this piece in the show particularly, because I find that a very strong expression, uh, very relevant then and today, because you can feel rock solid with someone who loves you or within your family, your friends, whoever it may be, your colleagues, um, no matter how uncertain and dangerous the world around us may be. I'm actually gonna skip that to just go to the end because I've gone way too long. Um, I was stunned when I went to Naples, Italy, to the Museo di Capi di Monte last fall to see a show in which Louise's works, she doesn't actually go and install any of her shows. She's, a, besides from being very old, <laughs> um, in her late 90s and in failing health, she hasn't really left her home except to go to her studio in a long time. She doesn't go to museum openings, she doesn't travel. She's agoraphobic, she doesn't like to be around in, in open spaces and places she's not familiar with and comfortable with. But she created this work. This is her final cell. It's not been published. It's only been seen once in this place. It was made specifically to be installed at the museum in Naples in this specific gallery. It's a large gallery filled with Baroque paintings. On the right, you can see a painting of the crucifixion and all of the drama that the Baroque artists achieved. Um, this cell, which again made out of mesh, wire mesh, has a floor and a top. It consists predominantly of a central spiral staircase and it's surrounded by a spiral of these uh, bl delicate blue orbs or spheres uh, suspended in a way that suggests a couple of other spirals going upward. When you see it from another angle in the same gallery and you see on one side a Baroque painting of the ascension of the Virgin into heaven and another one, the ascension, I think it's the uh, Christ going up uh, into heaven, then this piece makes a whole lot of specific sense. This is not referring in any way to Louise's past other than perhaps to the lifelong preference for the spiral and for glass and for enclosure. Um, I might add that You really, you just stood back from this piece because somehow it just took your breath away. It's, it's such a clear statement. She made this with help from her assistants. In 2008, to be in this room, surrounded by paintings of religion, spirituality, 
physical and mental suffering, uh, spiritual and physical ascension, uh, paintings about the promise of an afterlife. I mean, this from a woman who's making it at the age of 97. Clearly, she's looking towards the future in this. And when you go inside and look up, uh, I didn't actually go up the stairs, but this is what you see. You see these spirals of these celestial blue orbs rising up, and this staircase rises up in a spiral, and there's a specific opening left in the ceiling at the top of the staircase, as if to ascend to the next, whatever the next life experience is to be. So when one talks about Louise's work being autobiographical, in some ways it is wonderfully autobiographical because it achieves this sense of multiple layerings of potential different interpretations and of you know, expressions that range from, from rage and pain and suffering to um, reassurance, a sense of nesting within, or in this case, of rising above and beyond. And on that, I thank you very much for your patience in letting me go on in this sculpture and if you, uh, in this lecture. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to take them.